Hello and welcome back to another episode of Box to Box. I'm Alex Purry alongside Akshay Woodwani. Jeff and Jesse are unable to make it, but in their place we have on friend of the pod, Ben Santilli. Ben, great to have you back on. Uh, up, a lot to discuss. A lot to discuss. Starting with Manchester City with a 5-0 win over Sporting. And definitely lots to discuss there, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> no, not much. I mean, it's the, I don't know if we expected this lopsided of a result, especially since uh, it was the away leg for City. But I mean, I don't think anybody's fancying Sporting Lisbon in this tie. Um, City have a history of talking in the Champions League, but not at this stage, not against like this inferior of competition. All respect to Sporting Lisbon, but they can't stand up to Manchester City at any position. So uh, I think this is about how everybody expected this tie to go. Maybe not as many goals as City ended up putting past them, but yeah, nothing out of the ordinary there. And nothing much to add to that, right? Yeah, I mean, there, there really isn't much there other than to say that Bernardo Silva had an excellent performance and was creating a lot of, uh, of great space for himself and Mares on the other side, uh, too. Just creating opportunities, and the two of them are going to be something to look out for, and they're going to be really key to City maintaining that, not only in the, in the league, but in the Champions League, and, and keeping up that, that pace. So, yeah, Absolutely. not much to say there. Well, City look like they are through. Um, I think we can confidently say that they've booked their spot in the quarterfinal. Um, but on to the big one from yesterday, from Tuesday. Mbappe with a last-second stunning goal against Real Madrid to give PSG a very narrow 1-0 win. What do we make of this? Either of um, you can hop in here. I think, I think PSG deserved it. Um, they were the better team. Um, I would say that's as much um, to do with Real Madrid really adopting like a very defensive style for the entirety of the match as it is PSG actually playing well. Um, but PSG was still, you know, the superior team on paper, and I think they deserved to win the match. Um, I, I want to say it's almost a disappointment for them to only come away with a 1-0 victory, given that Real Madrid... Uh, pretty much focused on defending for the entire match. Uh, and PSG at home, I think, would really have hoped to come up uh, with at least a couple more goals. Um, but it is still Real Madrid. They're having, you know, a very good season. They're a very good team. Uh, defensively, they were pretty stalwart uh, for most of the match. So, uh, you know, I, it, it's a result I expected. I, you know, I think you would expect PSG to win in Paris. Um, but it's a very interesting time. I think uh, Real Madrid has a really good chance of taking this one if they can put in a good performance at the Bernabeu. Yeah, I would say this was probably a pretty honest performance from Real Madrid based on their, you know, like team makeup and, and what they're going up against in PSG. Like, obviously, the offensive firepower of PSG is impossible to handle. And so, honestly, defending for them and coming away with a 1-0 loss is probably their best case scenario in Paris, right? Um, and Mbappe especially played out of his mind. I mean, there's entire highlight reels just to him tormenting the Real Madrid defense yesterday. It wasn't even, you know, as much... Uh, of an involvement from Neymar and Messi. I mean, they obviously are involved, but that's exactly what you want out of your main strikers, just wreaking havoc on opposing defenses, moving quickly and doing exactly the things that they need to do, um, you know, to create, to continue on in victory. Right. So uh, I would say that if you're Real Madrid, you're sitting back here and saying, wow, that could have been like four or five, nothing. We could, we kind of looked like sporting there getting, you know, the, the majority of the chances on our end. Right. So it just for them to come away with that one nil is definitely a, uh, a good thing in their book. Um, I'm going to sing a different tune here. I mean, I think result-wise, 1-0 is not bad. But performance, I thought, was, was pretty shocking. We, I, I think, obviously, we knew that just watching them, their plan was to sit back, settle for a 0-0. Nil -nil. 
it, it, it almost worked, but that's not really Real Madrid. And I think Real Madrid's for a club of, you know, their history, their pedigree, they, they have to do better than having three shots the entire game and, and zero on target. I, I thought it was still very disappointing for them not to really take it to PSG, not to show any interest in attacking in going forward. Um, and look, I mean, yeah, they, they nearly got away with it. And 1-0 is still a very workable scoreline, especially since UEFA scrapped the away goals rule. But for, for me, I, I think Real Madrid just, just have to do better. I was disappointed with them. And apparently the, the Real Madrid hierarchy um, was not too pleased with Carlo Ancelotti for, for the way he set up his team as well. I mean, but, can you blame him though? Yeah. I mean, it's look, they're you the away, I mean, they're, the they're, they're the away goals right now. I, you, you'd expect they don't, they don't have, but the you, you mentioned, you mentioned, look, you mentioned the elimination of the away goals rule. That is probably exactly the motivation that Real Madrid had to come out like this. I mean, if what is the point of taking risks going forward and attacking Par, uh, Paris Saint Germain in on their home pitch in Paris? When you can just sit back and hope for you know a nil-nil draw or you know worst case scenario they did is concede. It really Ram, is it Ram there's no motivation for them to pursue an away goal anymore, especially not against an opposition as strong as PSG that can easily punish you if you commit too many men forward. Like I think Carlo Ancelotti is perfectly justified in the way he came out and played his squad. Well, I mean, still say though that there's no there's no excuse in a Champions League tie, even though you have two legs, to go out and try to play for a nil-nil. Uh, even with the away goals rule being abolished, right? Like we don't. I don't think that disincentivized, especially in a first leg, right? Because wouldn't you want to get kind of off to a good start? Because I think the whole reason they killed the away goals rule is because the home and away doesn't really matter as much in today's professional football, right? The crowds are kind of, um, you know, duller. And I don't think that it really means as much, which is the whole reason why the goals shouldn't count for a goal and a half, right? So I don't, I don't think that's really, an, on the other hand, an incentive to not score. I just don't think Real Madrid had the firepower and they knew it, right? Like they're, they're just really trying to skirt out of this one with either a counterattack or, or find some way to kind of sneak through this tie because it's Paris Saint-Germain. Like, what are you going to do? Well, I mean, uh, the, 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 even if you haven't been spectacular for much of the season now. They've been very unconvincing and underwhelming for, I would say, large portions of the season. And I think maybe Real Madrid should have sensed, you know, maybe there's vulnerability here to doubts about Pochettino's future. Uh, I, I don't know. I think even if you take out the away goal, uh, factor. I still, I don't, I don't understand why Real Madrid would be upset with Ancelotti for the way he played the squad against them. I think it, you know, it's still, it's still a very easy tactic to justify in terms of the situation and who they were playing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, PSG may not be in the best form right now, but it's still the Champions League and it's still PSG. And with that front three, especially Mbappe, as we saw, uh, you know, you, you can be justified in not taking risks and committing men back. And I think, you know, I, do, I would not fault Ancelotti for the way he played. I, I, I'm, I'm curious as to why Real Madrid is taking that stats um it just seems like a bit of an overreaction like they still have a home leg at the Bernabeu against PSG to you know attack at will so I I think it's still a justified tactic yeah and this goes back to what we said earlier them coming out just only losing one nail is a pretty good result for them right like I don't don't think there were too many people saying oh that this result should be five nil in Madrid's favor right like I don't I don't think we thought that was going to happen right so so for them to kind of cover their own bases right the only way to keep themselves in for the second leg was to only lose by one or to come out with either a draw or a slight advantage on their own side I I don't think it was going to end up being three three oh or five oh um real at the end of this time and and to be fair Madrid did defend very very well I mean they they had Mm -hmm. frustrated PSG for large portions and it took like a moment of magic, a moment of individual brilliance uh, for PSG to finally, for Mbappe to finally unlock that that defense. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we... for most of the match, it has to be said, they shut down PSG's primary offensive tactic, which is balls in behind to the wingers. 
uh, primarily right. Mbappe. They shut down that those channels really and Hakimi well. Hakimi was wasn't much of a either, and I think that's huge as well. Yeah, Hakimi. I, I mean, realistically, they have they have three to four goal scoring threats. PSG that you have to account for, and you have four defenders and, and some central defensive mids to handle that, right? So, I mean, and all of those players are capable of putting an entire team on their back and owning an entire game themselves between Neymar, Mbappe, and Messi. Uh, and, you know, that's the fact that they were able to contain that to just one nil is impressive in and of itself. So, mm-hmm. so I mean, we, we talked a lot about how the, the sort of lack of away goals incentive could have been sort of the driving force behind Ancelotti's decision to play more conservatively and sit back, have his side sit back for most of the game. UEFA has come under criticism for getting rid of the away goals. Um, you know, a lot of people are pointing to Madrid's approach as an example of the, the lack of away goals, sort of disincentivizing attacking play. I, I think it's too early to judge that. But what about you guys? I mean, because the, the idea is that, you yeah, know, Real I mean, Madrid would never play that defensively. It know. works both ways. It works both ways. If Real Madrid, uh, if the away goal was still a thing and Real Madrid had won 1-0 at Paris, then they would play probably the exact same way at the Bernabeu. So, you know, to say that the away goals is causing teams to play more defensively, that's moot because teams would do that anyway if they had an away goal advantage going into a second leg. So I think that's a that's a, that's a BS argument against, you know, eliminating the away goal rule. Um, and, you know, it's a trade-off. Uh, with, the, with the away goal rule, you get a lot more excitement um, and you reward teams for, you know, not doing what Real Madrid did and providing fans with perhaps more entertainment by, you know, playing four goals in away legs. Uh, but at the same time, you also create perhaps uh, what some people have argued is an unfair advantage for teams that happen to score away from home. Uh, you know, if you have a match, if you have a, if you have a tie that's very even, like, again, I'll bring up the Real Madrid PSG example. That's a very even tie where you could, you would favor both teams to score in both legs uh, normally. Then, you know, whichever team is scoring the away goal suddenly has an advantage that maybe is undeserved. Um, like Ben, you were saying, you know, away away matches aren't the same as they used to be. Um, you know, it's a lot easier, perhaps, for a lot of these teams to score away goals. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't necessarily de- disagree with the away goal uh, rule being eliminated. I think it definitely adds more parity in terms of how these ties are played. Um, but it's going to have adverse effects. You know, some fans are going to take exception um, to matches like the one that Real Madrid just played. But again, it's a trade off. Uh, if Again, if Real Madrid had scored. Uh, against PSG in Paris, then they'd be playing the exact same way at the Bernabeu. So, you know, it, it works either way. And I don't think it's fair to say that the away goal rule has encouraged teams to play more defensively away from home because that's simply not, that's not yeah. what's causing that. And not, and and not only that, Alex's, oh, go ahead, Ben. Sorry, sorry. I was just going to refer back to your point earlier about the whole, like, disincentivizing um, portion, right? These ties, like, front and back, right? You know, when you have a two-leg um, playoff tie, right? Like, nobody's going to want to come off on the worst foot in the first uh, in the first match. Really the away goals rule benefited even more in the second leg, but at least now it's, it's, you know, at least you know where you stand right perfectly when you're going into the second leg, but it's not going to help that you're the away team, right? Like where the match is being held does not matter now in the second leg. I mean, it can help you a little bit, but it's not going to matter in terms of the scoreline. And I actually think that will make the second leg a lot better because there were a lot of teams that were like already eliminated. So Manchester City won five nil away already. Okay, if Porto Porto would have to score six goals on the way back, right? Uh, in in Manchester, if they wanted to go through this tie, now all they have to do is, is score five and go to the extra time and see what happens, right? So all, all they have, they have to, to do, do is beat Manchester City by five goals. At no, the but end. I'm saying as opposed mm. as opposed to having to score yeah. six for sure. I mean, yeah. they can kind of they can kind of take it to overtime and, and sort of see where they're at, right? It doesn't eliminate any team after the first round entirely because they're going to have an insurmountable 
Yeah. And not only that, it also gives the home side more freedom to attack. Because l- l- let's say the away goals rule stood, right? Madrid go into the second leg knowing that if they concede one goal, the tie is pretty much done. That kills the tie. So they now have the leeway, you know, where they now have the leeway to take risks, to take risks conceding that goals. And yes, it would, an away goal for PSG would cost them, but, but not nearly as much. I think, you know, with the away goals rule, a team, first of all, I think would still be fine with, you know, going playing the first leg away from home, settling for a nil-nil draw, or even a one-nil defeat. That's still happened plenty of times. And then, you know, at the home leg, they sit back, try not to concede the away goal, and then the last 10, 20 minutes really go for it. That's now done. So it also gives the home side more and more flexibility to attack. So yeah, uh, yeah, I'm with you guys. Goes goes. Yeah, honestly, my conclusion on this is is just like I was and still am fine with the away goal rule, and I'm also fine with it not being a thing. I think either way, you're getting exciting ties, and you're you're not. The, the effects to the way teams are going to play in the first and second legs, I think, is minimal. Agreed. I would agree. Yeah. And also, like, I mean, we, we all know going out in away goals is such a bullshit way to lose. It, um, it is. Like, I think it added, it, and like, I don't want to, I, I don't want to harp on this, but I think it did add, like, a lot of great drama to Champions League second uh, ties. It did. But I think almost like people might be more interested in watching uh, first legs of Champions League ties now, mm-hmm. just because, you know, the away, you know, since the away goal rule is, is not such a big shadow uh, on yeah. second legs, I think first legs might get a little more love. Because normally, you know, like I remember in past years, like I haven't always been interested in watching first legs. So I'm like, you know, the real action happens in the second legs once the stakes yeah. are set with away goals and stuff. So. Right. I think once this, yeah. the fire was stoked, like as I was saying before, like now it's going to be a little bit more even on the return leg and it doesn't matter which order you have them in too so psg having the home leg at first does not really matter nearly as much as it would have in years past where they now they have a daunting task of going to the Bernabeu and trying to to overcome some kind of obstacle there or madrid have the um advantage of going home and uh, or they actually have a disadvantage of being at home because they don't have the away goal on the on the back end so mm-hmm. i will well, say yeah i think i will say sorry one last thing on this yeah um one potential downside for players specifically uh, is we might see a lot more ties go to extra time and potentially penalties as well, because uh, ties that would normally end on a draw and the away goal rule applies and that team moves on, uh, those ties are all now going to extra time. Uh, so you might see that players and managers might start to complain about this rule just uh, this rule change rather just on the basis of stamina uh, and energy, because potentially uh, there's going to be some much longer matches uh, for these teams to play further down the Champions League road. But again, uh, that's a minimal effect, and I think that's just part of you know being in the Champions League. You have to deal with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think before before you just move on, um, you know, I, I don't think there's reason to really assume this is going to be disastrous yet. Obviously, that could be the case. So I think you bring up a good point, Akshay. Players will get tired because more matches will go into extra time. But a, a lot, you know, a, a lot still to be seen. I don't think, at least in terms of quality of play-wise, we, we should expect much. But let's move to today's game, or today's two games. Um, well, let's start with Bayern against Salzburg. Um, Salzburg took a shock lead, played really well, caused Bayern some problems. Bayern do get the equalizer, and you just feel that at the Allianz, there's only one team that that's going to go through. Um, sh- should be pretty effortless for them now. 
Yeah, I, I would say on that one, um, in that particular game, I really think that Salzburg really had a good opportunity to put it away. Obviously, this was a Michael Oliver game, so you can never escape without any kind of silly drama or something resulting. We from know that. that very well, Ben. Third back yeah, to the. Yeah, I'm very, very experienced with Michael Oliver, but I think one of the good highlights that we could bring up was the American uh, player for Salzburg, the striker Brendan Aronson. I think he had a really good game, created a great opportunity in front of the goal. Unfortunately, the shot got blocked, but that could have sent Salzburg through uh, with a with a win into the second leg. But in general, I, I really think that Salzburg playing well is a very good indicator that like they're not going to go away in this tie. And, and you know, as much as Bayern's good, um, Bayern showed a lot of defensive weakness too. I mean, Salzburg was attacking for a good portion of the game, and without a couple block shots, like one from Pavard at the end of the game, and um, there was another one, I think, uh, a blocked shot um, on the other side of the defense. I don't remember exactly who blocked it, but you know, those two blocks and some great play by Sven Ulreich. Uh, kept Bayern in that game. Otherwise, you know, we could be looking at a very different shocker for Bayern headline tomorrow, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think that being said, uh, again, like Alex said, I don't think anybody fancies Salzburg to pull off the upset at Allianz. You know, it's Bayern at home. They have the vast, uh, vastly superior Champions League experience. Um, they do have a young head coach. I will say Nagelsmann, um, you know, maybe gives Salzburg the slight edge in terms of, okay, he's not a super experienced manager in the Champions League. He's probably the least experienced manager that Bayern has had going into the Champions League playoffs in at least maybe even more than a decade. They had Nikola Kovac a couple of years ago. Kovac, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. fair, fair. Um, but either way, you know, it, it's, I, I think that Salzburg put up a good fight, but Ben, like you said, it is a little tragic that they couldn't come away with more at home because, you know, they have a pretty daunting task ahead of them trying to keep Bayern out of net in Allianz Arena, and I don't think they can pull it off. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the consensus is pretty clear on that. Uh, but now for the big one, Liverpool, two late goals to take a an away victory. Not that away goals matter, but two late goals to take a 2-0 victory back home with them to Anfield. Ben, as someone who hates both Liverpool and Inter, there's no one better to get the first word here. Take it away. Oh. Well, I can't say that I have really good things to say about this match at all. I really think Liverpool are extremely lucky to escape at all with this win. Um, I mean, both of the goals, as, as, as we talked about, were, were quite lucky. Um, obviously, Liverpool put on some of the pressure, but there were so many opportunities that Inter had that they didn't capitalize on at all and, and really kind of squandered um, a great chance for them to head back to Anfield on the second leg with, a, with a, uh, uh, at least a tie. There were two grand opportunities that they missed. Um, I, I think it was uh, Shalinoglu hit the it's underside of the crossbar in the first part of the game. And then there was another attempt by, um, I think it was Lautaro that got blocked. Um, and, and it's just like, you know, and then there's a header by Dumfries that went across the cage that just missed. So I think Inter, you know, had their opportunities. They didn't, they didn't really capitalize on them. And, and we know Inter are perennial chokers in the Champions League, okay? They're, they're not used to getting this far. They don't know how to, you know, handle themselves. And they get themselves down early in draws, and, and then they're not able to come back for it. So I wouldn't expect much out of Inter at Anfield uh, after this performance. Yeah, uh, I agree with that. Uh, I, I don't know if I would necessarily say Liverpool were so lucky. I think that they were the dominant team. Uh, it, it was a fairly even match, but Liverpool were definitely dominating possession and had the majority of the real offensive chances. And I think Liverpool looked more likely to score for most of the match. So I wouldn't necessarily say Liverpool were lucky. I think the circumstances of both goals were a little suspect on Inter's end. Um, but I would put that more on Samir Handanovic, particularly the Inter goalkeeper. I think his positioning on both goals, uh, especially on the second one, was pretty suspect. Um, I'm not sure why he's leaving the entire right side of his goal open uh, as Mo Salah is shooting. 
Um, but only he will know that. Um, but I think Inter, uh, the main crux for them in this match was they couldn't find their key passes. Um, the example I would use is they had one opportunity late on. I think it was after Liverpool scored their second goal, uh, where they had four players lined up uh, making runs together uh, upfield. Uh, and the fifth winger, I believe it was Denzel Dumfries, uh, plays a ball and it ends up directly in the hands of Allison, which I think is an uh, is a perfect example of how Inter were for most of the match, which is they had lots of opportunities where they had plenty of players coming up in lots of open field positions, um, but they just couldn't find the passes to them. Uh, and you had balls that should have been uh, ended up on the heads of Inter players in the box or at the feet of Inter players on the edge of the box that instead were ending up uh, really easy clearances for Liverpool to make. Um, so I think, Ben, I would agree with you that the Liverpool defense uh, certainly had its suspect moments uh, and, and uh, left opportunities for Inter to take advantage of. But I would put it on Inter for not taking advantage of those opportunities. And, you know, I think they have a tall task going uh, back I, to San Siro. I, I excuse think, me, to, the, to Anfield. Sorry. I, I think it was almost, in a sense, in, in a sense, a, a tale of two halves. So I thought in the first half it was Liverpool getting into those better positions um, looking more dangerous and it was just, you know, that final ball or, you know, Jota or Salah for whatever reason, just hesitating to shoot. And then we saw more of that from Inter. Inter really came out firing after the break, um, absolutely stepped up. But this is what Liverpool do. You know, they hang on, they survived, and then they they just capitalize um, on their moments. And it only took a couple of them. They had two shots on target today and scored both of them. Inter Milan, you know, I, I got to say they're disappointing. Zero shots on target. That just simply doesn't matter what caliber of team you're playing against. That is not good enough ever um, in, in, you know, at a home leg of a Champions League knockout tie. Um, on the goal, though, I, I on the first goal, maybe not the second, but I, I think credit goes to Firmino for that more. I mean, yeah, what a header. Don't get me wrong. What a header. I mean, it yeah, was just definitely. a perfectly placed header, and this is what he does. Um, and I just I think it's great to see Klopp still being able to call upon them. Um, on that front three of Mane, Salon, Firmino, and and they're still delivering. Still, I'm within the second goal though. Don't know what Hamdan much is doing, but no idea what he's doing on that one. Even with the deflection, I was like, bro, you're like you're fully on the right side of the goal, just like standing there. I don't know what but you're it, doing. But it speaks uh, to Liverpool. Now. I think they I mean, get up at that point. Really, I, I think they just realized, oh, we're so we're in such bad shape. I mean, Devry with the poor clearance, he didn't even flinch after he after he put that ball right in the middle of the box. I mean, it, it couldn't have gone in any better for a drop for Liverpool. Uh, and I think one of the other things that Liverpool, you know, should take from this game is how important of a signing Fanate was. I mean, him next to Van Dijk just makes them so much more solid. I mean, it, he just knows how to defend in a different way that somebody like Joe Gomez just can't do. The way that he can sacrifice the body, you know, take away, you know, taller players. It, it's, it's incredible. So I, I think that was one of my big takeaways from the match as well. Yeah. I think he, he's basically Joel Matip, but he's more flexible and he's got more lateral quickness, which I think when he's play, playing alongside Van Dyke is really important to have for the Liverpool defense. It, it, was interesting, it was an interesting choice because Konate hasn't seen much of the field this season. It's been Matip lining up alongside Van Dyke for, for, like, for most games of the season. So Konate, he slots back into the lineup after, I don't know, a couple, maybe a couple of weeks out, and he just does a seamless job. He, he was excellent. I thought he was my man of the match today. Um, and that that really, for me, is what makes Liverpool most scary is just like not necessarily the, the amount of depth they have to compare it to a team like City, um, but the quality of depth that they have and the quality of players that they have and the interchangeability Klopp has with his squad is just really unrivaled for me outside of maybe City and Chelsea. 
Um, and yeah, it's, it's I, crazy. I, I think it makes Liverpool even more fierce. And we saw that at both ends as well. I mean, Firmino came on at halftime. Jota wasn't doing the job. Firmino comes on, scores. Luis Diaz comes on, looks very Absolutely brilliant. Uh, brilliant sprout up play for Luis Diaz in those last uh, 15, 20 minutes. I, I think his presence changed, changed the game as well. Um, I think just having that outlet of, of pace and skill um, just gave Liverpool a bit of a bit of a footing in the game when it looked like Inter really started to, to turn the screw a little bit. Um Ben, from from Inter's standpoint, it's it's pretty disappointing. Um, you know, I guess, I, yeah. I, I would say the second goal is definitely a a pretty good nail in the coffin. I think if they were going to Liverpool, only down one nothing on aggregate, I think they could you know go in with a little bit more confidence. But we know that Inter are involved in a very tight Scudetto race right now, and they haven't been in good form either in the league or in the Champions League. Obviously, we're just re- resuming Champions League play, but. Inter have dropped points in several of their last five games. I mean, I mean, they're not on a hot streak at all, which is sad. I mean, basically, since they won the Supercopa, uh, they they haven't really done a whole lot. Um, but they have a ton of depth, too, attacking-wise. I mean, look, look when they're taking off Lautaro Martinez, they're bringing on Alexis Sanchez, okay? Like, they have the skill and the talent to score more goals. And so I'm not going to say it's impossible, but also their players are small, right? Like, they're not going to be able to compete with somebody like Van Dijk and Konate. In the, in the middle Aside of from Edin Dzeko, who is a far cry from what Lukaku gave them last season. I still don't, um, like I understand fine, sell him off, a lot of money brought in, but I still don't really understand yeah. that transfer. I mean, um, poor form as well. It dates back to the, there's the, the loss in the derby as well. Uh, up yeah. at halftime. It's just, big it, it, it's such goals. a lack of motivation displayed from their players sometimes. It, it puzzles me so much because it's not like they have lack of experience in the squad. Um, you know, they've got lots of experienced players like Sanchez, like Jekko, Skriniar. These guys are all experienced players who have played at the highest level for a while, including Champions League football. And yet they seem every year again and again, Ben, like you said, they are considered perennial chokers for a reason. They just they don't show the attitude. They don't show the motivation. They don't show the desire or the drive to win these important fixtures. And it really puzzles me. It, it, is it a coaching problem? Uh, is it, you know, that the, the squad needs an overhaul of players that can bring fresh drive and fresh energy? I, I really don't know what it is with Inter. I think they really lack an older emotional leader. Um, like with Andanovic being their oldest player and longest tenured one, I, I don't think that he brings enough in terms of motivation and can't really set the tone nearly as well as, as he should. And I think that's been one of the hallmarks of Inter over the last several years is that they don't have an experienced leader to carry them through the doldrums of the middle of the season. And, and that's what's really cost them. They always come flying out of the gate because they're young and full of energy. And then as soon as something starts to go wrong, they hit it. They hit a stretch where they're they're heavily injured. They hit a stretch where you know they don't have a. They have one result that just tanks them for the next four or five games until they can figure themselves out again. They 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 go through these lulls every season. And, and there was a, a point a couple of years ago where there were ten points ahead at the at the break, the winter break for the Scudetto, and and squandered it all away in the second half of the season because they just couldn't keep up. And, and until they show otherwise, I mean, they did with winning the Scudetto last year, but until they show that they can also perform in the Champions League. There's no reason to believe that they can handle two competitions at once. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of sides, uh, you know, traditionally one of the bigger sides in the league that that have struggled. Um, Akshay, I think we have to touch on United. Um, drew against Southampton at home, disappointing result. Uh, did bounce back with the win at Brighton. But when you talk about players who just don't look motivated, who don't really look like they know what their role in the team is. Um, certainly lack of leadership. Who are you going to mention? Because there's several players that you could mention right now. <laughs> um, I mean, I think obviously Harry Maguire is the first one that comes to mind. That's who I thought, but I was like, there are several other candidates that he could bring up here. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, United, uh, first of all, I'll, I'll start with the Brighton win because I think that's a really important win for Manchester United in terms of maybe attempting to get back on track, uh, especially with uh, us continuing a piss-poor record at Old Trafford. That's really perhaps the most tragic part of this United season for me uh, is how piss-poor we've been at home. Um, that's continued from last season. Uh, and curiously, we have we continue to have like one of the best away forms in the Premier League. Um, but we just can't get it done at Old Trafford, which, uh, Old Trafford, Old Trafford uh, which is really sad for me uh, because it's a stadium with so much heritage and it's been so neglected by ownership uh, recently and really just is a total letdown for the fans at this point. There's so much less motivation for fans to want to, you know, travel to Old Trafford to see matches because it's such a rundown piece of shit building at this point um, that has been neglected pretty much for the entirety of the 2010s, if not longer. Um so I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but either way, you know, our home field advantage is basically gone as a team at this point. And so to see us get a, a good win uh, over a team that's in good form in Brighton uh, is, is really encouraging, especially also seeing Ronaldo get a much needed first goal of 2022. That's brilliant. Uh, brilliant finish. Bruno Fernandes, again, missing wide open chances. I don't know what's happened to him this season, um, but he does get us the winner uh, or the, the go ahead goal rather, I guess in the, in the 90 plus something minute. Um, but yeah, it, it's, to draw 1-1 with Southampton, like, I know Southampton have shown some fight recently, but we have no right to be only putting one goal past them at Old Trafford. Like, it just, I, I, I keep feeling like I sounded a bro like a broken record at this point because it's the same issues that come up with United over and over again. The defensive communication is not there. Harry Maguire has regressed horrifically. And at this point, people are, uh, the majority of United fans are calling for him to be gone this summer, which is insane considering the season he had last year. Um, I just, I don't, I don't get what's going on with this club. We've had managerial changes to try and fix things. That hasn't worked. We've had a major roster overhaul uh, year after year. That hasn't worked. We have the squad on paper to compete with the best of the best, and yet we're not even close to doing so. And personnel? I just, at this point, I'm at a loss to explain why. You think it's, I mean, we, a report came out that some of the players in the United squad had compared United's assistant coach to Ted Lasso. Um, obviously, they're both American, United assistant coach and Ted Lasso. I think Ted Lasso would do a better job. <laughs> I mean, I, I I almost wonder, though, how much of it is the player's mentality and, and how much of it is the coaches. I don't think Ragnick did it. Ragnick did himself any favors when he said, you know, if United don't finish sophomore, Ole has to take some of the blame. Like, no. You know, Which it, is it, bullshit, it, by the way. Complete total, bullshit. Total bullshit. Yeah. That is complete. That is like the, the most uneducated thing I've heard a manager say all season. But like we have some, I, I really think that it's, there's something like a club attitude, right? And, and I think the club attitude has a lot to do with the players' attitudes and the coaches' attitudes, things like that, right? So the club sets a lot of the tone. And it's very clear that over the last several years that Manchester United haven't had the right club mentality. They, they've been kind of like, we are the big, they have sort of the same like Arsenal kind of mentality, but things have worked out slightly better for them than Arsenal. Uh, where they have the big club status because they've been there before, but they don't have players who are on those teams that have been there before. And like, you know, they're, they're basically working on the class of 97 or whatever it was, you know, um, things like that, you know, using that as sort of their like, we're Manchester United. This is how we get good players to come to our place. Right. But then they don't have the club mentality and don't put it all together and make a, a proper product on the field. And it's the same thing. I mean, they had a great finish last year, but like, let, let's not, actually like the Premier League wasn't down last year across the board, right? So, I mean, for them to be finishing even fourth right now is pretty impressive considering how far down they were several weeks ago, uh, right before the Christmas uh, and Boxing Day break. But I mean, think about, think about what we're saying right now. Like we're saying it would be impressive for Man United to finish fourth 
this season and, and the last season. We considered it impressive that they finished as high as did when they really didn't finish that well for a club with their squad and with their pedigree. We keep saying this year after year about United. The standards keep getting lower and lower because this club keeps setting their own standards. And the thing is, the players are signing keep getting better and better. Exactly, and And that's why it's so puzzling to me. It it really because we keep bringing in players with higher and higher pedigree. We this summer is one of the best summer transfer windows we've had in the 2010s and 2020s. We bring in Ronaldo, Sancho, and Varane. Those are three world class signings. No one should ever be afraid of who United sign again. Because it's clear at this point, like we're not United could literally nobody's afraid of United as a whole. And still, yeah. I mean, but nobody no, is no afraid to play us, and they shouldn't United be based on who they signed. They shouldn't be. Sorry, those days are look, and I, I bring I bring I'm gonna bring up Man City in this context because I really think they're the foil to us right now. You know, they've always been our foil rivalry-wise, but I think they're our literal foil now. They're a team that, like us, has a squad that on paper should be dominating everyone. And what does City do? They actually do dominate everyone because every match. They come out and they go hard. They go hard in the paint. They go 100%. They play to win and they play to slaughter their their opposition. And, and not only, but United should be having that mentality every match too, but they don't. But they come out, they also play down to their competition, they play passive. Of how exactly he wants to use his players. Uh, you know, if certain players are injured, he can make those tweaks, get the best out of someone like Fabian Delph at, at left back or Fernandinho at center back. United, I mean, it's not going to happen from Mole. It's not going to happen from Ranić. Um, mm. And th- that's that can happen that's from Ole for offensive players, but not for defense. But it doesn't matter; he's gone now. So mm-hmm. that's true. Yeah. Um, um, but it's, just, ahead, it's just a bad mental. It's a bad thing mentality wise, right? And when the club doesn't have that right mentality, where they want to write the ship, they want to write the ship. But there's problems with the ownership. The fans aren't behind them. Okay, like they, they don't have a strong belief in their coaching staff that they're even going to be around for so long because they've been changing coaches so much over the last several years. I mean, we've seen these problems uh, um, manifest themselves in other teams too. I was, yes, I was literally just going to use those as my examples, right? I mean, it's a club attitude, right? And there's a reason why they don't finish well, where they don't have that killer instinct to go out and take a game, you know, and, and finish, right? Like you got to go out and take the game un- under your wing and do it. And, and Manchester United just seem to kind of get through on a lot of luck most of the time. And people are like, oh, Ronaldo saves Man United at the death. Well, if that's your headline every week, you're not doing very well, are you? Right. When they squeaked by Atalanta to kick Atalanta out of the Champions League, that wasn't deserved necessarily. Match we didn't deserve to win. Exactly. We didn't deserve then, to win either of those fixtures we had with Atalanta in the group. Stage. You have Ronaldo who knows how to pop up in the right moments. Exactly. And, that, you have, you have one big game player. And it was the same thing that was happening to Juventus for the last couple of years, where you're just hoping that Ronaldo shows up and bails you out. That's not a, that's not a good, it's, it's not a good team. Okay. You and can it, get winning results, but it's not sustainable. And it's, it's something that that's maybe one of the only things I'll give Mourinho credit for during his time at Man United is he recognized that our roster needed a serious lesson in humility. All of those players are were seriously arrogant. A lot of them still are, uh, including Harry Maguire, who we brought up earlier. Um, those players need like a serious humility check. Um, and I almost want to say that's that would be a motivation for us to bring in a more like hardline manager. I think the problem with the way Mourinho did it is Mourinho went about it doing it his way which is that he berates players constantly in the media and in public. And that's not how you get, you know, that nowadays that's not, that doesn't work for players as we saw. And that's why Mourinho is out. Um, But I think he had the right idea with recognizing that our squad is just very arrogant. A lot of these guys just think that because they play for Manchester United wins are going to come free and they don't have to put in 100% effort uh, against opponents like Southampton and Brighton. And no, you have to, it's the premier league. Every match matters. Every team has a chance to win every game they play. Uh, because that's the Premier League, and that's the parity that the English Premier League has. Uh, and I think, you know, it's 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 just classic arrogance of a team that historically has had a lot of success, but now is hitting uh, a fork in the road 
uh, you might say. Uh, and these players, I think a lot of them just really need another reminder that they need to stay humble and they need to keep working hard and nothing is going to come free just because you play for Manchester United. You know, you, you would feel that United's best chances for getting in the top four come from just similar issues at clubs like Tottenham and Arsenal. I mean, maybe not Arsenal, but Tottenham who are cycling through managers, um, you know, Pochettino gone, Mourinho gone. Uh, Conte, not, I mean, started off well, but looks like his, his impact is, is starting starting to wane. Um, ben, let's get you in here. You obviously know a lot about Conte um, from his time at Juve and obviously as someone who follows Serie A as closely as you do. Do, do you think he can get the job done here? Um, because we're, we're starting to see results slip. Uh, loss at home to Southampton, loss at home to Wolves. Conte himself said it's going to be impossible for Spurs to get to finish top four. What can we expect from Conte, at least from Conte's Tottenham for at least the rest of the season? What you can expect from Conte really depends on how much Conte is willing to give, right? And how committed he is to the team. Because, you know, Conte is one of those people who's very, very particular and has a very particular style and very particular players that he needs to carry out his system, which is how Tottenham were so active at the, at the transfer window in January, right? So Conte might need some time to turn over the squad and turn it into something legitimate, right? But with some players leaving and some players going, right, with Tottenham, it, it, it's going to be interesting to see kind of how the, all of those transfers that they made actually pan out. Bringing in somebody like Dan Kulusevsky was kind of puzzling to me, for instance, because he's not really like a particularly physical player that's capable of, you know, playing in Serie A, let alone in the Champions League, right? Or in the Premier League, I'm sorry. And, well, or the Champions League, really, at this point, in case they make it next year, Lord knows. But uh, I, honestly, with Antonio Conte, like, he can take this team there, Tottenham, he can push them over the hump. But will he is going to be really, really dependent on how he's able to utilize the moves that they made at the transfer deadline. And I, I'm going to say that based on those moves, the players that they brought in for the sums of money that they brought in, probably not the best use of resources and probably not the best plan if you're looking at what he's actually trying to do over the course of the uh, the rest of the season. And you don't think bringing in Ben Tancor is a good signing? Come on, we text uh, every week get... about how we, we text every week about how great he's been for you, Ben. We talk all the time about my thoughts on Rodrigo Bentancur, Alex, and and Twitter is also always a flutter of mine. Um, my my bio used to be hater of Rodrigo Bentancur, but <laughs> he's he's just brutal, really. And, and it's it's kind of wild to see because Lucas Torreira, for instance, is a similar player coming like both Uruguayan midfielders, you know, coming from Serie A to the, to the Premier League. But the reason why Torreira may be a little bit you know, you would say is a little bit more successful is because he's physical. He has certain attributes. He's a good player of the ball, right? Like he has certain attributes that would make him a good fit for a Premier League club, right? And he's had mild success. I wouldn't say he's a superstar the way that he was in Serie A. He was quite notable then, but at least has, you know, made his way there. Benton has no shot of making a name for himself in the Champions League or being a reliable player there. If anything, he's a decent depth guy or a good guy to have in training, really, I guess. I don't know. Maybe a, a lot of people were upset with his leaving amongst the team at Juventus, but, you know, maybe he just has a good personality. I, I don't really think it's from a style of play perspective. What about next season? Once Conte has a summer to bring in players, to, to really bring in players and implement, you know, his, his style of play throughout a preseason, what, what do you think well, we can expect? Do you think we can expect Tottenham to, to put up a serious challenge then, or is it just – is it Tottenham? They're just not going to have the mentality and and, and the group of players that, that Conte is looking for. Because you mentioned it, he's very, very picky, Conte. He needs a very specific set of players to fit a very specific set of role. And if he doesn't have that, it's just not going to work. And when he has it and it works, it works. 
But th that, that's the thing, right? Well, we know the history of the Tottenham. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but on top of that, we also know the history of Antonio Conte. And he's not really good at all um, about, you know, staying on track, right? He is not really, like, um, committed to franchises for too long. He kind of knows when he's run his course. He, he has spats with the management constantly. Now, he has a very favorable... Uh, general manager there right now that, that would probably listen to his input since they've worked together in the past. Um, but at the same time, and Antonio Conte is a bit of a wild card, right? He has Antonio Brown level blowups uh, everywhere that he goes, really. Like, I mean, he'll spat with the management. He'll spat with players. He'll say, this team just can't go any further. And he gives up and he moves somewhere else, right? And so it really remains to be seen on whether or not he'll stick around for long enough. But even if he does, I really think that Tottenham will still be a uh, either the latter half or the bottom four for sure. They're certainly not going to be challenging for a Premier League next season, but they'll either be a bottom half of the top four, maybe make Champions League if they're very, very lucky, or they'll be muddling around in the Europa League, which Conte doesn't really want to mess with too much. So, so I mean, for, for this season, does that make Arsenal almost favorites by default? Because that's what I would put it as, just given the problems at United and Spurs. Not that Arsenal... Nobody's, nobody's a favorite for the top four right now other than Liverpool. Yeah. Or Man City. Uh, like there hasn't been, there just hasn't been consistency from anyone. Yeah. Right. I, I would say it, it's going to be a very close race down the line. I think since Tottenham had the most uh, ground to make up of the realistic possibilities for getting through there, I, I would have to say they probably aren't going to contend for top four uh, down the line. So, so to be clear, United, do, do United just get the job done just because they have the best players? And, you know, like we've seen in recent years, they just found a way despite not really playing very well first of all first of all Conte literally said it would be impossible for Spurs to finish in the top four uh, let me I'll pull up is the that quote. a quote let me let me pull up the quote hold on because if Fine. so I have stuff to say about that uh, because they're only seven points out that's that's really not all that that crazy hold on let's see let's see um oh when you lose this is his quote when you lose two games at home and against Chelsea for a team that wants to qualify for the Champions League, it's impossible to happen. And no, no, no. Okay. okay. There's so much wrong with that quote. I don't even know where to start. Okay, first of all, um, for him to be saying that at this stage in the season when there's still 16 matches left for Tottenham on their Premier League schedule, that's kind of disturbing. Like, if I was Tottenham management and if I was Tottenham players, I would be like pretty shocked by him saying that because what he's basically saying with that statement is I don't have the faith in my squad to believe that they can have the consistency to challenge for the top four with 16 matches left in the season. And not that's that, pretty insane. But it, you, um, you know, secondly, they totally have a chance to finish in the top four. They're what, Ben, you said seven or eight points uh, off of yep. the top four spot. All they the are teams seven that they're chasing. So, so, okay. And they have several games in hand. But they have multiple, the other and all the teams that they're chasing, Wolves, Arsenal, uh, Chelsea, Manchester United, will leave Liverpool out because Liverpool are going to finish second. I think that's pretty guaranteed. West Ham. Um, all of those teams have been incredibly inconsistent, and you have no idea whether any of those teams are going to put up a good result on a week-to-week -week basis. So <laughs> for him to say that signals to me, one, he hasn't been watching anybody else that he's competing with for the top four, clearly. Uh, two... He, does he know how many matches his team has left? Three, does he know that what he's saying will be viewed by his players and will probably affect their morale and their relationship with him going forward? Like, I just don't understand that comment at all. Like, what is his goal to motivate the players you know, to you improve? Know so that that, like, is his goal know. to indicate to management that improvements need to be made in the summer? Like, what is, what is the intent of that statement? 
part of the reason that Mourinho gets so much flack is that he's constantly undermining his squad and casting doubts in public. And yet they just go and hire someone who does the exact same thing. And I think that was a concern that we had for them when the announcement was first made. Yeah. Right? How different is he really from Mourinho? Um, and, and also, I think um, the, the, Conte, the Conte hiring, I didn't, I didn't talk a lot about this when we first uh, learned that he was going to be the new Spurs manager, but um, it, it still puzzles me in the context of Tottenham has been very much not shy uh, about the fact that their offense this year is literally Harry Kane and, and Hyun Ming Son and no one else. Um, and I think teams, are start, teams have recognized that and have shut down those players effectively in wins or, or you know, victorious draws against Tottenham. Uh, and so for them to bring in a very defensively focused manager like Conte, to me, doesn't make a lot of sense when Spurs offense is what really needs an overhaul. I mean, their defense is suspect too, um, but you can't have an offense that obvious, so obviously relies on two superstars who can very easily be shut down. Um, or, you know, I don't, I don't want to say that Son can easily be shut down. I think Harry Kane can be very easily shut down. Kane the way is, he plays. Harry Kane is very easy to shut Harry down. He is very easy to shut down. Harry Kane just does not have a very diverse playing but, style. And I think that's the biggest off. weakness, but um, Hyunming Son can be can be effectively uh, limited, uh, and if especially if you know that the entire offense is running through him, which it pretty much is, uh, unless Harry Kane is having a really good match, um, your your Tottenham is basically relying on Hyunming Son playing amazingly and being able to either score goals himself or feed amazing balls to Harry Kane. It, it's um, individualistic. Um, but b- yeah. before we close off on Spurs, um, let's get to the the big matchup from this weekend. Tottenham against Man City. Um, Liverpool really have to hope for, for content Tottenham to pull through here. We should um, talk about Tottenham Wolves as well, memory. I think. I'm mm-hmm. sorry? We should talk about Tottenham Wolves from this past weekend as well. I mean, yeah. I mean, but again, you know, it's, it's just another disappointing result. for, for It is. Uh, it's, it's just, it, it's Tottenham again, like, playing very characteristically, which is they make a lot of errors in their own half. They don't take uh, their defense of their goal seriously. You saw like a bunch of half-hearted clearances, similar to what Ben, you mentioned about the way Inter was playing. Uh, saw plenty of that with Tottenham's defense in this one. Uh, it basically led to both of Wolves' goals um, or just re- really a lack of awareness in their own penalty box of who's where. Um, and again, like Wolves effectively limited Harry Kane, Wolves effectively limited Son. And that's really all you have to do to stop Tottenham from scoring at this point. Are so, we expecting anything from them against Man City this weekend? No. no. And it's going to be a route, probably. I think City puts at least three past them. Really? Yeah, I would, yeah, uh, I would say probably 3-1 three one is... Three one I would say probably 3-1 three three is pretty manageable. Yeah, they put... Or even if they, they just put Cancelo on Son, and that's Tottenham's offense gone right there. What's so, the score? I'm giving it 3-0, at least. I'm going to go with Ben. I think Tottenham do get on the score sheet, but it's not really going to matter when they concede three. Um, so l- let's wrap up a bit. Uh, let's go slightly down the table, more towards the relegation battle. Um, Everton just hired Frank Lampard off to a good start. 3-0 win over Leeds. What do we think? That's great result. Statement win, one they really needed, um, because I remember correctly, they had a pretty poor performance in a loss the previous week. I don't remember against who. Um, that was also in the Premier League. Um, so they needed a kickstart. They had a really good result. I believe also against Leeds, actually, in the uh, FA Cup, I want to say it was. No, that was against Brentford, 4-1. Um, and that was a really great start to Lampard's tenure, but uh, their Premier League uh, performance with him got off to a pretty shaky start. So to see them come away with a very decisive win and a win that they really should be getting against like a league squad that is trending more and more towards like being under threat of relegation. Uh, you know, it's a result you would expect them to get. Uh, and, you know, Lampard, once again, proving himself as a, a bright young prospect as a manager. <laughs> well, will, will Everton have enough to say up Ben, do you think? Honestly, I, I don't know. Everton's so hard to read because they have it in them and they clearly show it every once in a while that they're, you know, capable of producing some great things. 
And then there's other times where you're just like, well, this team just does not know how to continue that, or they don't know how to separate their good performances and replicate them for the bad instead of creating bad ones, right? So like this, the team gets a little hot and bothered, right? Oh, look at us. We won two in a row, for instance, right? Or we scored three goals in our last match. Let's go out. We got up, we're on this scoring streak. And then they can't find the back of the net for three straight matches, right? So their, their inconsistency is probably going to be their own downfall. And, and maybe they stay up barely, but I don't think that they're going to drastically climb the table much in the next, you know, several weeks. Well, you talk about, you talk about inconsistency, um, big win for them against Leeds, but the week before that, um, they lose to Newcastle who are on the up after some, some big summer moves. Sorry. And there are some excuses anywhere. there when we get to, we'll, we'll get to it talking about Newcastle more in a second, I'm sure. But there, I think there are some excuses for them in that one, even though they played pretty poorly. Um, Newcastle were just like, Newcastle came out with a fire under their asses and they still have that <laughs> fire under their asses uh, currently, but yeah. So I think there's some excuses for them because they were just overwhelmed by a completely like new, new looking, like new life, Newcastle team. Um, but yeah, I think consistency is the key word that you guys mentioned, um, especially on defense. Uh, I think for them to get a shutout is huge. Um, and cause the defense hasn't, has a lot of times not been there for them this season, but I think, um, one worry that they have, uh, is even regardless of whether they stay up, uh, this season, I think this summer, they really have to think about how they're going to keep guys like Richarlison, um, because I think Richarlison is getting, he seems to be getting pretty frustrated, uh, with having to toil on these Everton teams that really aren't doing anything. And I think he's a player, uh, who not only has the ego, uh, to believe this, but also does have the quality to show that he is a player that probably has the quality to be, uh, having more success elsewhere. Uh, and I think he probably will demand a move this summer, um, uh, I don't know what his contract situation is with them currently, but I would think that he would be pretty dissatisfied uh, with his tenure at Everton so far. And I think they have to think about that um, because he's one of their best players. He has a massive impact every time he's on the pitch for them. So uh, if he's gone this summer, then they have a big hole to fill. Well, with Everton risking um, losing some of their big players, but Newcastle um, have brought a few in in January and that definitely seems to be paying off so far. Let's bring up a couple of their last results. 1-0 against Leeds, 3-1 against Everton. 1-0 against Aston Villa, not the toughest opposition, but three wins in a row is more than what we've seen from them uh, for, for much of the season. And a matter of fact, the last thing they lost in the Premier League was December 19th, uh, 4-0 loss to Man City. But I'm Very excusable. Yeah. Very well, excusable. And, the, and, and them too as a club, around right? Newcastle. Their, their competition isn't going to be your Manchester Cities, your Manchester United. I know we can lump them in that group right now, but, you know, in terms of money and, and you know, what they bring to the table. But their competition right now is your Norwich, your Watford, your, your Everton, right? Like they're fighting those teams off. And so to have good results against bad teams is exactly what you need to do because you're trading points with them, right? You draw a bad team, they get that point too, right? So for them to make it out of those, um, for them, you know, easy draws, right? Like those aren't easy draws when you're at the bottom of the table. So those are the six pointers. Know, Exactly. Exactly. And if they lose those, then they're in an even worse position. I still think it would be hilarious if they dropped down to the second tier, but you know, it, it, their obvious ability to spend cash at the transfer window it may save them. Right. So they might walk out of this. Okay. I mean, it already is. They got Kieran Trippier and he's been their MVP ever since. I mean, he's been absolutely spectacular. He's been everything they could have possibly wanted. He's by far the, the summer, the, the signing of the January transfer window so far uh, and probably will be for the rest of the season, the way he's playing. I mean, he's brought much needed, much needed defensive leadership. He's brought veteran experience. 
Uh, and he's competing with James Ward-Prowse now to be the best free kick taker in the Premier League. So, yeah. And he you know, gives them that, confidence too, right? He gives yeah. them the confidence that they can win and, and the club believes in them. And that's why the club is willing to invest in them, right? They're not punting on this season. They're trying to stay up because they want to compete for the next year. I mean, Chris and they also want to be able to attract big name players to start signing with that new cash flow, right? So exactly. staying up in the Premier League and having like the Premier League as an attraction for those players is a huge uh, win for them. Absolutely. Well, well oh, and whole- also for keeping guys like Alain St. Maximin, who should be gone from Newcastle by now. I can't believe he stayed this long. Um, but now he's probably more motivated to stay because especially if they stay in the Prem, uh, he knows that they've got new owners that are going to put, you know, his level of talent alongside him for once. When for, you know, the entirety of his career so far, he's been toiling at Newcastle doing not much of anything other than being one of the most underrated Premier League players. So, well, before before we wrap up, and yes, I, I do agree, um, it will motivate the likes of um, St. Maximan and Guimaraes to, to stick around uh, for, for this project. Um, Akshay, we, we need to get to the biggest match of this week. Um, what, what's your what's your uh, rec leagues team? What, what, what What's your your team name (laughs) all right yes my boys team hayes today uh with a crucial matchup against the balotelli tubbies of uh the arena (laughs) i really like that one actually yeah i can't that's so genius good name isn't it Anybody um, out there, uh, that name is copyrighted, and I will sue you on behalf of whoever Well, but it's team. not your team's name. It's the yeah, other team's name. Time to steal it. <laughs> um, the Balotelli. Yes, the Balotelli Tubbies. I don't even want to know what their mascot would look like. Uh, probably an abominable it, it, love it, child it, between it, Mario Balotelli it, it, and one of the Tubbies. You're like a Tubbies, that's, like, ripped and doing, like, the, the pose that Balotelli made. Yeah. Just <laughs> Photoshop Balotelli's why, abs. Why always me shirt? Um, yeah oh that would be a great uniform just say why always me yeah. and I, should have blue on the I, I can't wait I to see what their uniforms look like honestly well you, you have to update us on monday um but before uh we close off anything else any final comments from banner Aksha? yeah so um, we got a big game today between the real inter uh hustlers today in pittsburgh okay that's my uh rec team's name uh so we got a big clash tonight at, at 10 o'clock so for everybody I'll probably be playing center either back. in the goal or center back. Yeah. Ben in goal. I'll, I'll be in goal tonight as well. So good yeah, luck to you. You've seen, you've seen it before, Alex. You've seen it. It happens. Uh, I, know, I, I, know. I remember up. when I played with you, I played in goal because I just like was completely out of shape. Um, <laughs> Alex I, in I, goal. Oh, I'm not still out of shape. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah. Well, anyway, uh, Ben, thank you as always for hopping on. We love having you. And with that, I'm Alex Perry alongside Ben Santilli and Akshay Wadwani. Thank you for listening and you will hear from us next week.